This podcast number 851 with Scott Miller is brought to you by Mark Gober, author of a new book entitled End of Upside Down Living, Reorienting Our Consciousness to Live Better and Save the Human Species. In my interview with Mark, we talk about the orientation that fundamentally drives all of our lives, our values, priorities, and decisions, and ultimately what you do in the world. The purpose of this book is to explore with perception where we should set our life's compass. To learn more about Mark Gober and his books, please visit his website at www.markgober.com. And now for our featured podcast, please listen to my interview with author Scott Miller about his new book, Marketing Mess to Brand Success. 30 Challenges to Transform Your Organization's Brand. Happy listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. That smiling face on the other side is joining us from Detroit, but that's not where he lives. It's Scott Miller. He actually lives in Salt Lake City, Utah, and uh, has the new book out called Management Mess to Brand Success. Jeffrey Scott Miller, he's been a prior guest on the show um, for uh, Management Mess was the other one that we did. And he's got a whole mess series. Uh, That's what he's doing to leadership success is he's creating a series of these books. And Scott, it's a pleasure having you back on the show. Craig, I'm honored. Thank you for lending me your platform and shining your spotlight on my Mess of Success series. Got lots of messes after 30 years. So there are 10 books in the Mess of Success series coming out over the next eight years, uh, 10 in total, the publisher has asked from me. So the next one will be Job Mess to Career Success, and then Communication Mess to Influence Success, and then a whole bunch after that coming as well. So well, the, I, reason I, you I, have all the, all the reason you have all these messes, Scott, is because they've asked you to write 10 books. So, And you have a family that you've got to take care of as well. But I'm going to let uh, my... <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> I'm going to let my listeners know just a little bit about you. He's capping a 25-year career where he served as the chief marketing officer and executive vice president. Scott Miller currently serves as Franklin Covey's senior advisor on thought leadership. Uh, Scott hosts on leadership, which, by the way, is a great program I'd love all my listeners to go to with Scott Miller the world's largest and fastest growing weekly leadership podcast. And it's more than leadership, folks. There's a lot of videos there, and he does a great job. And the bookclub.com series. Uh, Scott also authors a leadership column for inc.com and Utah Business and hosted the weekly iHeartRadio show, Great Life, Great Career. Uh, His Ignite Your Genius coaching series has helped leaders take their careers from accidental to deliberate, and I'm going to say, and on purpose. All my listeners, please go out, get a copy of this book. You're really going to enjoy it. Now, Scott, great introduction by me, (laughs) but you know, you've interviewed hundreds of authors for the book, uh, Management Mess to Leadership Success, and during the journey, you say that you could not just tell your story from the perspective of hitting home runs. Um, you know, you have had a lot of foul balls and strikeouts. Um, therefore, this book, Marketing Mess to Brand Success, has 30 challenges, one for each chapter. Personally, what have you learned from the messes that you've made 
you're you basically are the king of messes. So you understand that not everything goes well. I like what Jennifer said yesterday on the interview you did with her. She said, Jack Welch said, as a hiring manager, you can only get it 80% of the time correct. You're not always going to get it correct. And that kind of stuck with me because, you know what, if you do it 80% of the time, you're doing pretty good. So tell us about um, what you've learned, what my listeners would love to know about the adverse side of things. Well, I think one of the reasons why I'm writing the Message Success series generally is because I think vulnerability is a leadership competency. I think vulnerability is a parenting competency. It's a spousal partner competency that, you know, Brene Brown, of course, has kind of burst on the scene in the last decade talking about the power of vulnerability. And I think, you know, as a leader, as a marketer, as a sales leader, as a whatever role you're playing in life, professionally or personally, the ability to show perhaps an unnatural level of humility, to talk about your messes and your challenges. And I, I share openly that I'm a stutterer. I have a very pronounced stutter. I've worked 40 years with a speech pathologist and speech scientist to help me push through that, braces, headgear, retainers. And so I've got lots of challenges. Stuttering is just one of them. And I think the more that you own your mess, you make it safe for others to own theirs. Because people want to work for people who are relatable. Gone is that sort of broad chasm, that valley between you and your leader, you and your boss. People want to be able to relate to their leaders. And so I think teaching through your own messes, not gratuitously, not confessing every sin you've ever had, right? I mean, that I have some decorum about you. But when you sit your team down, kids down, you talk generally about the mistakes that you've made and what decisions you made that resulted in those mistakes and how you teach through them, I think is a powerful impact. And so yeah. I'm going to spend the second half of my career teaching through my messes, not my successes. Well, it's, it's a very refreshing too to hear it. You know, um, we obviously have had uh, lots of people in politics that likes to just talk about all their wins. And as you know, it gets pretty tiring to hear that because, you know, it hasn't been that way. Now, Scott, you state that one of your favorite books was Buck Up, Suck Up and Come Back When You Foul Up. Um, can you speak about the 1992 election of Bill Clinton and why Bush lost and correlate this to marketing messes? Um, you were the first podcast host that has asked me this question, and I love it. I love it. Thank you <laughs> well, it's one book. of your favorite books. You know, I actually read these books. That's the difference. I can tell. <laughs> I can tell. You're one of the few. Uh, so I have lots of favorite books, and this is one of them, right? I'm actually a Republican, lifelong Republican, a little less so in the last four years. If you get <laughs> yeah, my drip. But, yeah, I'm sure. Um, I'm a lifelong Republican. I worked for George H.W. Bush and Senator uh, Quayle who became president and vice president. Uh -huh. And um, but one of my favorite books is from these two renowned democratic political strategists, James Carville and Paul Begala. They of course became famous in the 90, 1992 Clinton-Gore campaign with then governor Bill Clinton and then Senator Al Gore, who ran against a wildly popular president, George H.W. Bush. He had just come off a 93% approval rating right. after the success of the first Gulf War. Your opinions about that war aside, it was successful from in terms of um, at least the Kuwaitis thought it was successful. Right. My point is, is that the economy was, you know, going to hell in a handbasket in the U.S. Unemployment right. was raising up the SNL loan scandals and such. And so 
there was a sign most of us remember that was on the Little Rock, Arkansas headquarters of the Clinton Gore campaign in James Carville's office that said, loosely quoted, it's the economy, stupid. To remind them that the only way they were going to win this economy was not to, you know, pound Trump or um, pound Bush on diplomacy or national relations or military. They had to focus on the economy. And so I used that phrase, it's the economy, stupid. And I translated that into the first challenge of the book, which is in this card deck I have, it's called the customer stupid. Because I think inside organizations, we face the same challenge, which is we get so fixated, Greg, on our mission, our purpose, our EBITDA, our supply chain, our second quarter profits, our stock price that we lose track of what our customer needs, what is their circumstance, what are mm-hmm. they challenged with? Mm-hmm. I love this phrase that, I heard someone once say that the best salespeople aren't the ones that have memorized their second quarter goal. It's the ones that have memorized their clients' second quarter revenue goal. And they are as obsessed with helping their clients meet their needs as they are meeting their own in that order. So it's the customer stupid which reminds all marketers, heck, for anybody for that matter, that you're going to get sucked into the vortex, the hairball of your company's needs and as a marketer, as a leader, you need to make sure that you are representing your client's needs, speaking in their voice and their message, talking in terms that they speak in and getting out of your own world because it's a vortex, a hairball that we naturally gravitationally get pulled into. It's the economy stupid became, it's the customer stupid challenge for one. Really, you know, and this kind of leads really to the next question because you started talking about it a bit, really knowing your customer's goals, knowing what your customer needs. And you say, every one of your chapters is a challenge and a lesson. And challenge three is to stay close to the cash. Yeah, um, That's one of them. And you speak about a call from the chief people officer wanting to give you the title of chief marketing officer. And you state that the prior chief marketing officer was too focused on marketing. And you actually said in the book is, how can somebody be too focused on marketing? And you said, what a surprise that is. It's supposed to, you know, that's what a marketing officer is supposed to do. What, um, what has he or she not focused on was the sales. What is the secret to balancing between marketing and sales? Because the reality is marketing people are supposed to build the campaigns and drive that. But, you know, if they're not focused on sales, they're not a very good marketing officer, right? So this may, this may offend some marketing people. I don't mean it to, I mean it to challenge you. This is why I wrote the book. As an eight-year chief marketing officer in a pl- public global company, I was tired of seeing sales and marketing always fighting, right? Sales blaming marketing and marketing blaming sales. And it's every CEO's worst nightmare, right? After a reputational breach is that cancer. That is the disconnect between sales and marketing. It happens so often in so many companies. So I propose that too many marketers, not every marketer, but too many marketers join marketing because they're afraid of having a revenue goal. They're afraid of owning a PL. They actually are kind of hiding behind brand equity. Now, I get the value of brand equity, obviously, but you can't staple brand equity to the back of a bank deposit slip and fund payroll <laughs> off of it. Now, yeah. I get brand I equity, like right? But marketers need to be confused as salespeople. When my finest days, Greg, were when the CEO 
when I'm sitting next to the very competent and to this day, my very dear friend, president of sales, would be giving me campaigns and, and be talking to me about the revenue goals. And I'd be like, I'm the CMO. I'm not the sales guy. But because my behavior convinced him that I was right there in the sales boat, rowing with him, not rowing against them, not creating campaigns that fed my ego, but creating campaigns that drove sales, that drove pipeline, that drove leads, that drove revenue, that I helped sales convert them into customers. I would just put a shot across the bow to every marketer. Stay close to the cash, meaning are you confused by the CEO or founder as the chief of sales when you're really the chief of marketing? No better compliment that you can be paid, that your, your, all your campaigns, your desire is to own the revenue goal as much as the salesperson's own goal and not stay in the comfort of marketing. Well, we created the campaigns and we mailed the postcards and the website was launched. I mean, just the sales staff. No, no, no. Those words should never come out of your mouth. If your sales staff doesn't understand how to, how to position it, solve it. You own it. If customers aren't converting, you own it. Solve it. I just have a passion, hopefully a positive passion around the role that marketing needs to play in revenue generation. Stay close to the cash. Make sure that everything you do is associated with your name and revenue in the bank. Well, it'll definitely help you keep your job, one. And, and the two, the other, right. the other factor is it's going to keep a, a very solid company. Uh, stock values go up, EBITDA goes up. But more importantly, when you work together as a team, you create a harmony where the campaigns that marketing is creating and the salespeople are utilizing to fill the pipeline are in harmony. You're yeah. also yeah. serving the customer better as well. So yeah. that's, that's a really important factor. Can I expand on that? So well said. Greg, I don't know basketball very well, but I live in Salt Lake City where, of course, the Utah Jazz play. I don't know, 25 years ago, there was the famous duo, Carl Malone, the mailman, right, and John Stockton. And the famous phrase was Stockton to Malone. Now, Carl Malone was an enormously talented, very tall player, happened to be a, a Black American. John Stockton was a less tall competent player, happened to be a Caucasian male. And there was this phrase that was stopped into Malone, right? One of John Stockton's job was to get the ball up to the net or near the net so the mailman could deliver the mail, right? Get it in. And I, I use that metaphor, probably not translated very well, that I saw marketing as the John Stockton of the business. I saw right. sales as the Carl Malone. And although the, the leader of sales and I were at the same level in the company, compensated the same, same influence, same title. I saw intentionally that marketing's job was to serve sales. Mm -hmm. That required me to demonstrate humility more though than was natural for my personality. We were both very loud, confident people, but I wanted marketing to realize sales pays our salaries. Nothing happens until someone sells something and we are in service to them. And I'm very comfortable with that. Some of my team members thought that I was making us a second play, second tier citizens. No, just our job is to serve sales. Our job is not to feed our egos or to win at sales' expense or blame sales. If sales does not meet their goals, we own it as much as they do. And I tell you, Greg, that's the paradigm, the mindset that kept me in the job for eight years, twice the national tenure of a CMO. Not because I was some genius CMO. I wasn't. 
But the CEO and the board realized that I was as committed to meeting our quarterly goals and serving our clients' goals as much or sometimes even more, perhaps, than even the sales side. That's what kept marketing so relevant at Franklin Covey under my leadership. Well, the, the, the elixir is really the quality of the salespeople, too. So the higher the quality of the recruiting, which was Jennifer was talking about on your on leadership is really important. Now, Scott, in your chapter on decide your own tenure, you just talked about it. You mentioned that you that wildly popular podcast called on leadership. Please tell the listeners about the show and why your interviews with Whitney Johnson, the yeah. interview with because Whitney's been on our show a couple of times as well and got you focused on your own tenure. What a gracious host you are. Uh, Thanks for giving me the opportunity. So On Leadership with Scott Miller is now the world's largest subscribed to distributed weekly leadership podcast. It's about 8 million a week. It's a Mm -hmm. video podcast, very much like yours, similar format to yours, where I get to serve as the host. And every week we have a different guest on. Sometimes they're Pulitzer Prize winning authors, four-star generals, Matthew McConaughey, Karen Dillon, Dave Hollis, you know, all across the spectrum, Dan Pink, Seth Godin, Susan Cain. Sometimes they're Franklin Covey experts as well. Short conversations. Last week's, actually this week's was Emmanuel Acho, the former NFL player who wrote the book Uncomfortable Conversation with a Black Man. He was amazing. It launched yesterday. One of our guests to your tee up was Whitney Johnson, fairly famous author, speaker, coach. She wrote several books. One was called Build an A-Team and another was called Disrupt Yourself. And Wendy is a bit of a scientist, right? And she did some research on what is the average tenure of a professional. At this point now, it's kind of on the outset three years. More kind of the sweet spot about 18 months is the average that someone actually spends their time in a company. Now, I'm a dinosaur, right? At age 52, I've been here for 25 years. So it was really reading Whitney's book several years ago called Disrupt Yourself. That really gave me the courage to kind of validate my own career strategy, but also um, stepped down as the chief marketing officer because I think eight years was enough. Actually, it was like seven plus years. It was time to bring someone else in new that had, you know, SaaS experience. The CEO asked me to stay three times. The board wanted me to stay. It was time for me to move myself out of the role for lots of reasons, right? Because you get complacent. Uh, you become a bit of a know-it-all, a bit of a genius versus the genius maker of others, to quote my friend Liz Wiseman, who wrote the book Multipliers. I think it's the best leadership book ever written, Multipliers by Liz Wiseman. And so one of my career strategies, Greg, has always been to disrupt myself before I was going to be disrupted, right? Act or be acted upon. It was Jennifer Colosimo, one of our company presidents who you referenced, that said something once that horrified me, disgusted me. But it was absolutely true. And she said, and let your guests or your listeners listen to this carefully. This is great career advice. You're never in the room when your career is decided for you. That horrified me. But I think it is so true for so many of our our, our careers, right? As the C-suite or whoever it is, is thinking about it's time to move us over or move us out or move us up, but instead take control of your career. So I'm a pretty bold person. I like to disrupt myself, move myself outside of a comfort zone. I'm a pretty courageous person. That was sharks. Not with snakes, not with alligators, but most other things. I'm a pretty courageous person. So Whitney's advice is to be very clear on when you're becoming complacent, when you're becoming too comfortable. Because what happens is, is you don't recognize it, but other people see it. 
And so you should really internally be courageous enough to recognize when should you disrupt yourself before someone else does it to you or for you, act or be acted upon. And I write in the chapter about this was one of the motivating forces for me to step aside from being the CMO and do something else so that someone else could come in. So I kept my own brand intact. I left on a high and, and too many people, I think, leave on a low because they hit their high and they're comfortable, they're safe, and they kind of glide it in. Not because they have a poor work ethic, they just don't realize that the high passed and now it's time to let someone else shine and move on to a greater contribution. So the, the challenge is called decide your own tenure. And I love this, this, you know, this phrase, have a plan or be prepared to become part of someone else's. I don't want to be a part of someone else's plan. I want to be have your own plan. I like that. Well, it's it's an entrepreneur entrepreneur. You know, when you work inside of big companies, you want to keep that entrepreneur uh, kind of mentality. Um, if you're not an entrepreneur and you didn't start the business because Franklin Covey wasn't your business, right. uh, it's a different story. I come from a completely different past. Uh, I've been an entrepreneur all my life with many businesses that I've started and and uh, either got rid of or sold or whatever. So I understand that mindset because you know you have to make decisions about uh, how we're growing the company to serve our customers and also to serve the teams of people that are helping the company grow the best. Um, you know, in your chapter, you mentioned Liz Weitzman on lots of stuff won't work. You mentioned Liz's book, uh, Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter, was the book that has the most impact on your leadership style, you said. Also, yeah. can you comment on making time for thinking and actually putting it in the calendar? And I think this is important because, you know, so many people are running so fast today just to try and keep up that it's insidious. Um, and there's there's two elements of it. One is because the they, the desires to have more stuff require them to get more money. Um, their ego is saying they're not enough and they're not spending time thinking, as you said, and planning. And I really think this is an important element for anybody in personal growth, sales, marketing, it doesn't matter. Just like you did, you stopped and took a note of what Whitney Johnson was saying. You were thinking, you're saying, I'm going to create my own plan. I'm not going to let somebody else make my plan for me. Tell me how important that's been to you and how you put that in your calendar personally. Well, this may sound like a cliche, but I was sitting once in the CEO's office at Franklin Covey, an enormously competent, trustworthy gentleman who I'm very dear friends with. We, 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 we argue like fathers and sons, right? But I love him and he loves me. That's why I stay at Franklin Covey, because people don't quit leaders who love them. I've been there for 25 years. He said to me something that was uh, life-changing. He said, Scott, thinking is a legitimate business activity. I never heard that kind of put in that phrase before. And he was really was coaching me. He wasn't shaming me. He was just inspiring me to be, you know, to take time to not always be in production mode. I, I like, I get validation out of shipping, right? As a metaphor and literally, I, I like to mail and send and click and ship. I like to see the results, but I, I, I often admired in, in, in tactics because I, I get validation out of tactics where I need to be more strategic. I think your 
ability to be more strategic comes from slowing down, being thoughtful, being contemplative, focus on am I asking the right questions versus am I rushing to solution? I love to go to solution mode. And so I do schedule this into my schedule. Thinking is a legitimate business activity. Sitting down in your office with your feet up on your desk while people are running by, and just sitting there thinking about your priority. What is my greatest value? What is the most pressing problem? Am I framing it the right way? Am I asking the right questions? If I have the right people aligned to the right task and talent, am I in the right role? Are we focused on the right things? Have I set the clear priorities? I'll come back to this. Am I asking the right questions? Mm -hmm. And so it was this quote from our, our chairman, thinking as a legitimate business activity that allowed, empowered, forced me into moving less from tactics and less from solution and more into thinking and strategy and not being so focused on judging myself by my outputs, right? perhaps more on my inputs, making sure that I'm solving the right problem, that I've got everybody focused on the right project. And so I'm much more comfortable now, Grant, sitting in my office, not wondering if I look productive, because we've all been there in some part of our career, right? Is Are we right. seeming to be productive and such, but are we focusing our highest talents on the right problems. I tell you, decision-making is arguably the biggest leadership competency we pay for now, right? As you hire people to make decisions, do this or do that, ask this or ask that, marshal this, starve that, feed this, starve that. So I do, if not daily, several times a week, I will put time on my calendar, my team, and we'll just talk about our priorities. I love that it was Oprah, her, her partner, Stedman Graham, is a dear friend of mine. And he's told me many times that Oprah opens all of her meetings with this question, what is our intention for this time together? Mm -hmm. It sounds a bit Oprah-ish, right? Oprah is an icon, but what a great question, right? What, what is our intention with our time today? Ask well, yourself the same thing. Yeah, I think it's a great way to open every meeting is the intention because you have so many meetings, right? And I think it's important to give you uh, take heed of what's going on. The other thing is, I think some of the important decisions made are cultivated by the silence that you can create during thinking and accessing your intuition. And most of the greatest leaders will tell you if you look up the quotes on intuition, um, intuition was the gut feeling they had or the, the, the source that they got from a higher power that guided and directed them. And I think it's so important that intuition plays a role in uh, some of those decisions because you, know, you can get critical thinking and sometimes you can get lost in critical thinking. Um, and uh, if you wanna see around corners, as one of the famous people say, see what's coming, um, you basically are going to want to access that intuition. And you're a real fan, and you say the least, of Seth Godin. Uh, you state that you've read and studied every one of his books, you've read his blogs, and you followed advice. What would Seth say about defining your smallest uh, viable market? Also, why should we study the work of, and I'm going to state this, of Rachel Hollis? So, you know, Rachel sold millions of books. I didn't know who she was until you mentioned her in here in your book. And so I think there's two parts to this question. One is yeah. about Seth and the other one's yeah. about Rachel. Why should yeah. we 
study. Yeah, um, I'll try to do this as short as possible. Uh, okay. If you're not, if you don't know who Seth Godin is, you need to stop, put, press pause on this, and go <laughs> sign up for Seth Godin's daily blog. It's absolutely profound. I call him the Sethoscope because his profoundness is like he has a stethoscope on your office meeting door, right? Uh, huge fan of Seth, he's an iconoclast. Uh, I, he sent me a scathing email yesterday about something I was doing that he was not happy with. And I love it when he spanks me because he's so wise and deliberate. Seth, in his book, This Is Marketing, I think it's the best book ever written on marketing. His book is called This Is Marketing. Although I'd love to have you buy my book, Make sure you buy Seth's book, This Is Marketing. One of his chapters is called The Smallest Viable Market. It's counterintuitive. Most of us think about the largest viable market on your SBO, SBA loan application, right? Or on your VC funding. You're talking about all the customers that you're going to get, right? It's counterintuitive. Instead, Seth would say, don't try to boil the ocean. Think about what is your smallest viable market. It is, it is um, unnatural for most of us, right? Who is your first customer? Who is your first reader, your first buyer, your first subscriber? What, what is their circumstance? What circumstance are they in? To quote the famed innovator Clayton Christensen, what is their job to be done? What job are they hiring you to solve for them? So Seth Godin taught me this counterintuitive thinking around, here's my book for. My book is not for everyone, right? It probably is for the mid-level marketing manager who's trying to build a career Yes, an entrepreneur can host it. Yes, a sales leader might buy it for people. My, my, my main book is focused on people building a marketing career inside a company. Smallest viable market. Pivot to Rachel Hollis. I'm a big fan and loyal friend to Rachel Hollis. She's had a rough year politically, socially, culturally, um, made some missteps. Her marriage ended, her business kind of imploded, but it, she'll be back. Um, Rachel Hollis wrote several very famous books called Girl, Wash Your Face and Girl, yeah. Stop Apologizing. In 2019, she sold more books in America than anyone other than former First Lady Michelle Obama. Um, she was making $150,000 a day in her speeches on Good Morning America all over the world. Oda developed a huge training um, leadership company with all kinds of coaching products. My point is, is that um, Rachel Hollis wrote six books before you ever heard of her. You never heard of smart girl, you never heard of party girl, but you. But a lot of people have heard of girl wash your face and girl stop apologizing. And the point is that there are no shortcuts, right? To right. success, there's no, no such thing as overnight success. Good point, there, good There point. is overnight fame. Ask, you know, ask um, Lorena Bobbitt. <laughs> but there's no such thing as overnight success. And what Rachel did geniusly was she was in communion with her customer. She called her customer her. Millions of her, right? These um, women with side hustles, stay-at-home mothers, women that had were highly educated but perhaps were struggling in life to find their voice and find meaning out of just raising kids. And they were trying to, you know, build lives that were fulfilling or balance everything in life. And they were failing, or they were at least failing from the perspective of others who mattered for them. Rachel Hollis, like no one I've ever met in my 52 years of being alive, built a business and a brand authentically connecting with what she called her smallest viable market. It was, a, it was a very tight profile of women that found her to be very relatable. Since then, it's had a bit of a rough and tumble you know, time with cancel culture and lots of issues that have come up. She'll be back, and I'm a loyal friend to her. But study Rachel Hollis's career. 
I, I'm not her profile, right? I, I'm not her customer. Right. You're not her customer. She's very clear on who is and who is not her customer, and she's crushed it. And I think that, you know, you know, the smallest viable market, that's what that is. It's like saying you do. It's it's been said many times if you can find I think it was a like the tail end even of the podcast, the little piece, the one minute, the two second minute um, area. And if it was about a certain topic that there were enough people interested in, that's your smallest viable market. Right. Well said. So. Scott, you have 30 challenges and we're going to sum up the interview. I didn't get to ask all my questions, but I know you're pressed for time and you've got to go get a shower and get on stage. Um, you have 30 challenges to transform organizations, brands, and your own, you say, meaning us personally, yeah, yeah. if we're a brand. Um, yeah. What advice would you leave our audience with about the best approach and tactics for organizational and personal brand success? Uh, this is why your podcast is so excellent because your questions are so deliberate and you read the book. Thank you for respecting me and taking the time. No to problem. Read it, Greg. Um, this is not a profound insight, but everybody has a brand, right? Andre Agassi and, and um, Rafael Nadal and TJ, TD Jakes. Everyone's got a brand, including you, including all your customers, all your listeners, all your viewers. Your brand is just merely your reputation. And your reputation is merely, in my opinion, the collection of all of your decisions in life. Commitments you make and keep. Commitments you make but don't keep. Promises delivered. Are you trustworthy? I'll give a, a speech to audiences frequently. Send 7,000 people. 10,000 people. I'll say, raise your hand if you're trustworthy. Every hand goes up. I say, nope. Put your hand down. Who decides if you're trustworthy? It's the other person, right? Have you built a trusted brand? Have you behaved yourself into a reputation of being trusted by others? That's all brand is, right? Brand is the outcome of great marketing, of great sales, of delivering on promises made, promises kept. And so I think, again, I think too few people think about how to deliberately craft their own brand. Now, not all of us are famous stars, me first among them. But everyone's got a brand. Tom Cruise has a brand. Oprah has a brand. Greg has a brand. But all of us can deliberately create it. You know, are you the person who's always punctual? Are you the most curious in the room? Are you the most um, deliberate about your answer? Are you E.F. Hutton? Are you always the person who sends the thank you note? You have the best manners. Are you the most well-read? Whatever it is, right? I mean, I don't mean it to be tactical or personality-based, but you can build a deliberate brand by continued repetitive actions that add value, that people learn to trust, that they that where your brand is that if Scott says it, Scott will do it. Scott is predictable. I think there's a beautiful balance between being curious. Probably, and, probably one word, Scott, sums it up. It's your character. And it is your character, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it, well, and we don't even have to say leadership care, character. I just had Jim right. Moore on here. Yeah. Um, right talking about his new book, um, the, you know, building character, it's your morals, it's your ethics, it's how you behave, it's your character. And I'll go back to that because no matter how big you are or small you are, if you're the smallest guy here in Encinitas making skateboards or the largest corporation making Vans tennis shoes, the guy just died who started he Vans, did. right? Just died. Yeah, right. So the point was, is the reputation and that brand 
is built on consistency and it's built on the ethics and it's built on the morals of the people running the company. And that really makes it. And, and you are somebody who exemplifies that, my friend. And that's why you are a success, no matter how big you say you are, you're not Oprah. For my listeners, I want them to go out and get Marketing Mess to Brand Success. Check out Scott's show on leadership. Check out his podcast and his coaching program. We'll put links to all that when the links aren't broken. <laughs> but there'll be links. There'll be links. Anyway. You know what? That's friendship. That's friendship. And our pre-consult off the air, Greg told me that my website was down. ScottJeffreyMiller.com. I tried to blame it on the crush of all of Asia coming to my site last night. He didn't buy it. So hopefully you'll be back up by the time. I'm sure Drew will get get it back up, but I will let you get to your shower. And um, (laughs) just out of curiosity, who are you speaking with here in uh, Detroit? Yeah, so I'm in Detroit um, uh, today. I'm speaking to a big purpose uh, conference. There's a conference that's a collection of human resource professionals, CEOs, chief talent officers who are all helping their employees identify and connect their personal purposes to the organization's purpose. So I'm speaking about leadership on day two of what's called the Purpose Summit up here in Detroit. Headed back home tonight, and then I'm, um, I'm somewhere on Friday. I forgot what city I'm in. I don't know yet. <laughs> I gotta, uh, I gotta congratulations, out. Scott. Thanks for squeezing it in for you, Inside Greg. Personal Growth. Um, blessings to you and to Drew. Safe travels. Uh, again, yes, I have the uncorrected proof. So that means Scott's <laughs> going to send me the real book as I request it. Thanks, my friend. You guys take care. Have a good rest of your day. Um, and thanks for talking about marketing messes to brand successes. Thank you, sir.